If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Horde was the name given to the vast Mongol Empire that stretched across huge swathes of land for almost three centuries, from the 13th century right up to the end of the 15th. But how was this vast empire ruled, and what was life like within it? Marie Favreau, Associate Professor of History at Paris Nanterre University, has written The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World. Her book has been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. And our content director, David Musgrove, caught up with her to find out more. Let's start off uh, with the first line of your introduction. Uh, The Horde was neither a conventional empire nor a dynastic state, even less a nation state. So that's quite interesting. So what on earth was the Horde? Well, yeah, so the the Horde actually um, was the western part of the Mongol Empire. So it was... uh, took shape in the early 13th century, first half of the 13th century. It lasted until the early 16th century. And um, 
It covered um, most of what is Russia today. It covered Kazakhstan, so part of Central Asia. It covered um, a part of Eastern Europe, Ukraine, part of Bulgaria as well. So it was a really huge, um, you know, political construction, uh, a really huge um, political regime. And uh, it was uh, founded by the descendant of the eldest son of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan. So his eldest son was called Jochi, and his descendant, we call them the Jochi, they founded the Horde, and they will remain in power on the throne until the 16th century. So it's a, it covers a big geographical area and a big chronological period. But what actually, what, what sort of polity was it? What are we talking about? So you say it's not an empire, it's not a state. What, what is it? Yeah, well, it's a kind of empire, but it's not a conventional empire. It's like, not like a Roman empire. There's no capital. And what is specific is that they are nomads. The rulers are nomads and remain nomads up to the end of, you know, the 15th century, 16th century. It's a nomadic power. Uh, they build cities, but they don't have a capital. Um, so they have a different ways of dealing with, you know, power administration. They are very mobile. Um, so uh, what my interest in this, in this book was really to focus on their uh, political regime from inside, how, how they, you know, organize politics, how they gather because they are nomads and so they live separately. So um, that's why the Horde is not a typical, it's not like a nation state. It's, it's another kind of uh, state or another kind of empire, if you want. And, and the actual word, the Horde, and this, this, this area is also sometimes called the Golden Horde. What, what, does, what does that mean? Well, um, so the word itself, or Orda, Ordu, is an old Turkic Mongolian term. It's, uh, you know, it's an, a, a term you see in the sources from even for earlier period. And uh, it mean di- it had different meanings. Uh, it could uh, mean like a military camp, court. Uh, but at the time of the Mongols, it became a very important term. That's what the way... They name uh, their their power, their po- their you know their political organization, economic organization. They call it the horde. So I found it very intriguing and interesting that at the same time uh, in Europe, in what is Russia today, in the Middle East, uh, they would keep the word horde. So the word appeared in all these languages in the 13th century. They did not translate the term horde uh, because they thought, wow, this is something new. We don't have a word for it. So let's stick to the word the Mongols have used. And somehow the term, uh, you know, now had you know, very different implication. Horde, it means like a bench of people, violent, disorganized. But actually, uh, for in the 13th century, Horde was a highly organized, powerful state. So it's. I thought it was very interesting to keep the word and to, you know, uh, explain to the bigger audience um, what was the real meaning of that term. And, and the, the sense that it was sometimes called the Golden Horde? What's, yes, what does that right. Mean? Uh, right. Uh, so Golden Horde actually means uh, Imperial Horde. So royal, imperial, so um, gold, golden, this is uh, something we see often in the sources because it's connected to um, kingship. But uh, my work, uh, my idea, so 
Actually, historians like Golden Horde, this terminology, they use it often, like my Russian colleagues use it. It's very common in, in historiography. But uh, I realized that my, the interesting aspect of this history was uh, this political construction. What is behind this, you know, name Golden Horde? This the Horde is uh, the system itself. So my interest is really like to understand the inside the regime, what is behind this dynastic history that we call Golden Horde and a king after another. Well, no, what's behind it? How how did they, you know, gathered and, and discuss, um, um, I don't know, war, peace, diplomacy, all this. So I wanted to focus on this and not... Uh, I mean, and not on, you know, the traditional way of narrating history with, you know, rise of a state, um, flourishing moment and then decline. I wanted to tell something else. And uh, colleagues who also work on nomadic, uh, you know, empires are interested because they say that Horde is also perhaps a, a specific institution, something really specific to the nomads. So that's why it's good to sort of Forget a little bit about Golden Horde, Imperial Horde, but think about Horde, what's in it, right? Okay. Now, you, you mentioned to start with that the, the Horde was uh, was born out of um, the, the Imperial building aspects of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan. Um, but it wasn't, it was only one bit of the of the greater Mongol Empire, right? So, so what are the other bits to this to this Mongol polity? Yeah, so the um, there are several big regions. Uh, one is uh, like uh, covered what is China today. We call them the Yuan, and one was in Central Asia, um, where you see the Uyghur today, and uh, and part of Uzbekistan. And we call them the Chagatai, Chagatai um, Khanate, and uh, one in is um, in the south. Um, and uh, it's covered uh, actually Afghan a bit of Afghanistan, Iran, up to Anatolia. We call them the Ilkhanate or Ilkhanid. Uh, and uh, and then you have what we call the Horde of the Golden Horde, so in the north, Russia, and a bit of Eastern Europe. So um, all these parts are independent politically, but still connected. Um, the Horde is part of the Mongol Empire, although uh, they have their own organization, they decide on their on their ruler uh, themselves. They don't ask the other, you know, Mongol uh, rulers. So they are connected, but independent, a little bit like a federation or they are a kind of commonwealth organization. So in my book, I was very um, keen to show how they remain connected in the same world for the Mongol of the Horde. They are closed, I mean, of, they are very close to the Ilkhanid or to the UN, but they have their own, they can take their own decision, especially when it comes to, you know, their neighbors' war, diplomacy with, you know, their European neighbors, for instance. So it's a, it, it's a, a kind of, a very interesting kind of, political relationship and economic relationship as well with the other part of the Mongol Empire. Now we have to understand that this part, the Mongol uh, hordes uh, of the West, will um, last longer than the rest of the Mongol Empire. So it's a little bit of a, a mystery uh, in a sense that the Mongol Empire collapsed, let's say, at the end of the 14th century, but the horde 
remain very strong, like a major political um, actor in, in, in the North up to the 16th century. So we had to explain this. So uh, it's about the Mongol Empire, but it's about a leading part and a very, and like a most enduring part of the Mongol Empire. We should just stop a second, just go back because we haven't quite clarified how the how the Mongol Empire actually got to to this part of Russia, how how the horde started. So the Mongols spread from the east, the, these nomadic peoples, and they um, they took over other peoples. How, can you just very quickly chart that story for us? How how Genghis Khan and his descendants actually managed to to form this empire? Yeah, so the Mongol conquest out of uh, what is Mongolia today started uh, in 1207, 1208, uh, under the um, guidance and control uh, of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan. So he was the leader of a number of nomadic groups, including Mongols, not only Mongols, but they were all called Mongols. It's um, a term I used as a political term almost, right? Uh, and in the 13th century, um, they will uh, conquer um, northern China. Um, they will conquer a part of central China. They will conquer the part, important part of Central Asia. So the Muslim world start being involved in this uh, big uh, history uh, up to uh, the the death of Genghis Khan in 1227. His sons and grandsons will continue his work, the conquest. So the conquest period will actually continue up to the end of the 13th century. So it's one century of conquest. Um, after the death of Genghis Khan, one of his great son called Batu um, will um, um, take over the conquest in the West towards so what is Russia and Europe. Um, and uh, they will, and so they will be um, they will integrate actually um, the the western part of um, Asia uh, in the 1240s, 1250s into the Mongol Empire. After that, they will conquer uh, the south of China, uh, and um, at the end of the 13th century, they will also try to invade uh, Japan. It will be a failure, but they will keep uh, Korea uh, into the empire, and Korea will uh, actually play a very important role in the Mongol Empire. So, uh, so you have one century of conquest, but during this century of conquest, you you already have um, a, um, a administration. You don't. It's important not to think about okay. There's first this conquest, then administration and peace, and then possibly like decline or you know transformation. No, uh, from the early 13th century, the Mongol they conquered new people, they integrate new people in their empire, new lands, new cultures. They develop, they change, and they administrate at the same time. And their own administration will evolve. Uh, up to the you know 14th century, so it's very mobile also in that sense. It's it's uh, yeah. So um, um, I think that the Western part was um, particularly actually um, interesting and dynamic because they had this connection with Europe and also actually with the Middle East through the Caucasus. So um, that's what I. Uh, demonstrate in the book what what did it actually mean to be a mongol though because you mentioned that the sort of the mongols they that's sort of, that word encompasses lots of groups of people i think is it is it an ethnic def definer is it a cultural term what does it actually mean well yes thank you for this very interesting question because of course 
the term today, uh, we use it and we think about Mongolia, but we really have to think differently if we turn to the past. Um, Mongol was a, really a political term. It was a term clearly chosen by Genghis Khan. It existed before, but he chose this term. There were others. He chose this one to name the people he would um, like his support, his followers, the member of his group, let's say. And I, I'm not happy with terms like tribe, and I really want to show that um, they have their, because what you mean by tribe, it's not very clear, I think. So they really built a new, a new nation in a way. Uh, so the term is, you can become a Mongol in the 13th century. Uh, that's very interesting to see how groups who, you know, had other names, other, you know, have their own lineages, would would enter the Mongol polity. And uh, that's uh, something really uh, interesting to see because that's clearly um, uh, that's clearly something that makes the Mongols very strong. They are able to uh, integrate new people. They are able to absorb uh, newcomers. And that's uh, also, uh, socially speaking, it's, it's rare and it's very interesting to study it. So just thinking about another empire, the Roman Empire, you could, you could become a citizen of Rome. Is it, is it synonymous with that then? Is being a Mongol at the same sort of phrase as being a citizen of Rome? Yeah, well, I've, I would say, well, no, I don't think it's exactly the same, but it's the process is the same in the sense that you want to have more followers when, when you know, how can they enter uh, the, the even the state apparatus? How, how can they enter, like you know, the, the official administration? How can they be part of the, the the power in a way to share? So you have to share part of your power with the newcomers. So of course, the Mongol way um, is a little bit different. They um, they would um, ask people to, to take part of the administration of the army or the um, religious clergies, um, depending on the, on the origin of the people, depending on their level of loyalty as well. So they will test them in a way. So you will, you would be tested. Uh, if they see that you, you're a loyal person, then you will gain a lot of, you know, tax exemption, a lot of uh, benefits. And then you would become at some point a Mongol or almost like a Mongol in terms of rights. Uh, but, but at the same time, the really highest, um, position, so we call it Khan, so it means ruler, emperor, uh, has to uh, be, um, I mean, it has to be someone from Genghis Khan's family. So it's very, they are not, they cannot fear that a, a stranger would take the power. They feel safe because they have this very rigid system that the ruler has to be uh, a descendant of Genghis Khan through the male lineage. But thanks to this very rigid aspect, then they can open doors to you know, many different people, different languages, different way of life, not only nomads, also sedentary people, because they have this, you know, they, are, they don't fear that these people would take the power from them. So, um, uh, so it's interesting to see how they are supple in some ways and open, yes, okay, you can become a Mongol, but you would never become, or your son will never become, you know, the ruler. So they, um, they, they needed both, you know, to have a balance. 
Okay, so um, uh, so that answer sort of dipped into a, a bit of the answer, I suspect, to the next question is to how did a nomadic people, and you said they remain nomadic for, for much of this period, how did a nomadic people rule an empire? How do you do that? I mean, you, when we think of empires, you imagine that you need some sort of some sedentary structure, some place from which you can rule from. What, what, was, their, what was their process? Well, uh, yeah, uh, well, there are two things. One is uh, the way they do with people, as I said, absorption. So each time they conquered a new people, like for instance, the Tengut in, you know, what is uh, central, uh, central and Western China today. Tengut people were integrated into their armies and Tengut people were very good at, uh, you know, um, engineering like a war um building war machine uh, and uh, they asked them to build you know to continue their work to build war machines to um, at, attack cities and they integrated them in their own you know military administration in their armies that's just one example they also um, conquered um, um, uh, important, you know, sultanate in, in Central Asia and Iran. There, they were like Persian secretaries. They would uh, accountants as well, like merchants, accountants. They would integrate them in their administration, also in financial administration uh, immediately. Uh, so they have this way of, you know, growing and you know, integrating people. That's and that's probably very specific to the nomad. Um, at the same time, they also um, would uh, be very seasonal. They really they are nomads and they are herders and they uh, uh, are uh, they do pastoralism and they would uh, respect. I have you know respect like seasonality very much. So they would fight. Uh, during certain season and uh, rest during other season. So uh, they uh, also have this very specific organization. And uh, regarding uh, mobility, they have all these groups, all these uh, hordes, actually, uh, all over uh, the uh, empire, very often near big river, big river valley. And they communicate in between the hordes. They communicate by sending... um, um, a horseman uh, on on you know a, a very big postal and you know network system that we call the yam, uh, and the yam system is is a very important part of their power. It's really how they build their communication network. So you could communicate in between you know two river valleys where you have two hordes. Let's say there are two hundred uh, miles in between by sending a very quick you know, messengers on a horse, he could change his horse to, you know, uh, uh, once he arrived at, uh, at, the, at the post and uh, get, you know, food and rest and then go and continue his, his, um, his mission. And that this system was very well implemented by the Mongols. And they, it, it explained how they, you know, you need communication when you want to build an empire. That's the way they, they made it. Um, and seasonality is also important because it means that they were able to um, to, to face, um, like, you know, harsh winters or uh, even in Russia. They had this experience in Mongolia. Uh, they could also face very dry summer. So they had this, you know, um, you know, very clever way of 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 understanding uh, nature and and weather and ecology. Can, can you give us a sense of uh, 
of the worldview of a Mongol, their nature and purpose. Because I'm wondering, why why did they want to expand this empire? Why did they want to develop this empire? Because from reading your book, it seems like they weren't interested necessarily in the traditional sort of Western idea of wealth acquisition. In fact, there's a, there's, there's a very interesting anecdote you have about one of the Khans um, giving away a load of money, because, a load of silver bars, because he couldn't see the point of, of storing it. So what, what, what were they trying to do? Why, why did they want to rule? Yeah, well... Actually, yes, they were interested in wealth and power, uh, but they want wealth and power for themselves, for, for, for their society. But uh, what they want uh, also is a circulation of wealth, like a form of redistribution. It's not because they are... In, it's not because they were specifically turned to, you know, um, want to defend poor people or... No, it's clearly connected to their uh, beliefs, they have, you know, a, a spiritual notion of what would bring, what circulation could bring to a society, to a people. And uh, for them, what counts is not only the living, it's uh, the future generation and the dead. And the living are in charge with both. And uh, the living have to share the wealth um, with you know, the dead and with the future generations. How? Through rituals, rituals of redistribution. There's a lot of rituals also to, you know, uh, make things circulate, not only like physically, but also spiritually. And they believe that this is how a, a people um, can, you know, survive and continue over and over the generations. And uh, they have this really strong belief. So it's, it's, uh, very material in a way. It's yes, it's wealth. Yes, it's power. Uh, but they don't hoard it. They make it circulate. And if they do that, it's really in connection with their um, spirituality and the way they see the afterlife. Uh, so uh, they are very, you know, it's a very different way of the what we the way we see it today. Um, I, I guess it's it was very specific to to their you know um, to their world. Uh, but I think it explains a lot. Uh, it explains why um, economic uh, exchange, uh, long-distance trade was so important for the Mongols. It's not only that they want to, to gain more, you know, they don't have uh, only, you know, appetite for more treasures, but it's also because they believe that if they have more and they share more and they distribute more, this will multiply and multiply and this will, you know, help their children and their grandchildren and so um yeah i think that's something that would be like you know um dry, a, like a driver for them so was there um an initial uh sort of formal mongol religion um is, is that what you just described and what happened when they came into contact with the with the other world religions you mentioned that they sort of they they hit up against islam and obviously they also hit up against christianity as they moved it moved west so so what happened there well, actually, it's not yet. They have their own belief very clearly, but it's not like a formal religion. They are not like dogma. It's different from um, Christianity. It's different from Islam and Buddhism. Um, and we try to reconstruct it. It's difficult because, of course, we don't have a lot of sources. So we see description of their rituals. We see through archaeology some objects. So we figure out shamanism probably had a very important uh, place in this, in the rituals uh, or maybe you know also uh, probably um, 
uh, astrologist as well. This was very important. Um, uh, medicine men in general had a very important place also at the, at the time of Genghis Khan and after. Uh, the, the very interesting thing with the Mongols is that in the 13th century, you see that they were also very open very early on in the maybe already in the 1220s, early 1220s, they were interested and open to the other religions, to uh, Buddhism, to so Taoism, to, um, uh, of course, different, you know, Christian, I mean, different Christian um, forms, different forms of Christianity. I mean, Orthodox Armenians uh, were very important in the um, western part of the Mongol Empire. And, uh, and of course, Muslim uh, religion. That, uh, they were interested, but um, the Mongols were, so they made their choice. Uh, some rulers decided to convert, but they were two things. First, they will keep their older belief, so they will combine them. They decided that they did not, it was not a problem, that they could combine um, their rituals, old, you know, step let's say, step beliefs and rituals, and Islam or and Christianity um, and Buddhism. Uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, they don't want their subject to convert like them. They don't want to have specifically the same religion as their subject. It's not an issue for them. Uh, and so they will let their subject to their religion as soon as they, they remain loyal as soon as they pay taxes it's clearly said in the sources as soon as they pay taxes let them believe or you know practice their religion uh that's that's very very special and interesting uh for for this medieval period and um also they developed um interesting policies regarding uh, religious practices they decided that clergies Let's say at least the high members of clergies uh, had to be protected and that they had to um, have time for, you know, make prayers and do practice their religion and organize the, the cult. So they would um, uh, exempt them from taxes and they will exempt them from military conscription. <clears throat> so the clergies, Muslim clergies, Christian clergies, uh, clearly also uh, also Jewish uh, clergies, uh, and of Buddhist clergies were considered as protected people, and they would not pay taxes. They would gain a lot from the Mongol power, actually, uh, across the centuries of 13th and 14th centuries. And that's uh, this very interesting policy. I call it in my book, Tarhan, Dakhan, so exemption policy. Um, will have huge consequences on, you know, this after on on all this religion because they will they will be very prosperous they will flourish and it can be explained through the you know this uh, uh, decision political decision of the Mongols. Sounds like they were quite pragmatic in 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 many respects in the way they were. What what was it like to be ruled by the Mongols? What was it like to be a subject people? Do you think would it have been a, a pleasant experience? Or? I don't know. I differ. I think it depends. You have to show your loyalty, but and to pay the taxes and and you know. But after that, it. It depends where in the empire. In the Western part, um, I show in my book that actually the connection with the Russian was not so bad. They were not so violent after the time of the conquest in the 1240s. Then they will develop a lot of, um, you know, ex form of exchange, cultural exchange. And, um, and the Mongols also, they did not live uh, in cities. Uh, although they can finance and you know support city construction, uh, they live in the steppe. So this 
so they don't really um, show themselves, you know, as harsh rulers like every month of the year. Though their subjects, their identity subjects, feel only, you know, that they are in charge, that the Mongols are the lords when once a year they have to pay the tribute and the taxes. Um, so I think it's, at the end, explain why they did not have so bad relationship, but on the contrary, rather rather good relationship. And um, and the Mongol also, well, uh, had um, asked, that's something important. That's probably not typically Mongol, but typically nomad. They want the, the, their subject, or let's say the 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 chieftain of their subject, the head of their subject, to come and visit them. They want to see them physically at least once a year for a certain period of time. They invite them. So, for instance, the Russian prince would be invited in the Mongol horde and they, he would have to stay and live as a nomad with the Khan, the ruler, uh, and, and talk about, you know, politics also. And this is something that is, was very important for the Mongols. They would ask, you, you're our loyal subject. You have to come and visit us and we'll give you also gift and we'll give you advice and we'll decide together. And that's the way they practice politics also. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If the Mongol really hired you as an ambassador or, you know, um, a merchant like Marco Polo was hired by the Great Han, for instance, uh, they would, the Mongol would give you a kind of passport. Uh, actually, it's more like a, a metal tablet. It could be made of, you know, uh, silver or gold or iron. And you would show it to people to make them, you know, obey or uh, respect you. <laughs> We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. What would it have been like to to visit uh, the Khan in in uh, in his in his felt felt tents? We think that the Han's hoard was much bigger than all the other hoards, and that it was uh, um, very impressive. That's what the visitors described. The traveler they would say it's huge, like a, a, a city that a, a mobile city. So it's very impressive, uh, uh, and also it's extremely organized inside. So it's not like a city, like a city city where we know there were you know um even possibly like danger and and disorganization and well a city is not or you know always really organ- well organized well a um, nomadic camp horde was extremely um yeah dis- disciplined there's a lot of discipline and um, people know their place they know where they they have to stay with their tent and their family it's all decided there are a lot of hierarchical, you know, um, behind decision behind it. So it depends of, you know, your connection. So if you're connected to the Khan, if you're an important person, you will be closer to his own tent. Otherwise, you can be far away from him, like miles away. Um, in the horde, you would find, uh, so that's something uh, also maybe uh, worth to mention, you would find um, craftsmen, you would find the workshops, uh, ceramic workshops, uh, Iron, you know, people working on, you know, iron, uh, silver, like metal workshop. You would find markets. Uh, you would find animals, although part of the animals can be also sent away for, you know, sanitary reason or for um, sake of place. Um, so you would not, what I, I mean is you would not only find warriors and men, you would find a lot of women and children also. Um, so yeah, we, we have some description. And if um, you are a foreigner and you want to stay uh, with the Mongols, then you have to, um, uh, let's say, uh, be, um, be careful because there are a number of rules that you have to respect. Uh, you, there are rituals that you have to respect, so you cannot use like water uh, without, you know, consideration. You have to um, not to touch the door when you enter the tent. There are a number of rules that are connected to the Mongol spirituality that, you know, you really have to um, pay attention to. And um, and that's interesting because we have in the sources a description of, you know, how you behave. And if you go to the Han, how you move in the tent, which side you go, how you sit, when do you talk, uh, and all this information we have so it's uh yeah it's it's make it really lively like you know you feel well if i were there how how should i you know behave myself but uh but all the visitors said that it's it's safe to be inside that's why it's very different from a medieval city it was not safe to be uh you know in in paris in the 13th century you really had to be careful robbery whatever well in the mongol horde no there's no such thing that robbery for instance a lot of discipline but you have to, you know, respect their rules. Okay, so so a, a potential sort of diplomatic minefield as you're going around. What might you have got involved in a in a drinking festival? Because you um you sort of talk about uh, this this substance called cumis, this uh, fermented mare's milk, which seems to be a really important part of of Mongol society, and the fact they had these massive drinking festivals. So tell us a bit about them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> kumis or ayrak in Mongolian is um, fermented mare milk. And uh, it's still produced today uh, in Mongolia and in Central Asia. And you, uh, it's produced um, um, in spring uh, because of the lactation of the mare. And it's, the production can last until the end of summer, let's say until September, but not, not after that. So it's a part of the year, like a, let's say three, four months when it's, it's a special moment. So you have this production of uh, milk and Mongol do fermented mere milk. So it's not the, the level, I mean, the fermentation turn it into like very, very light beer, I would say. So you have to drink really a lot, a lot uh, to get drunk. So, but, uh, but we know that uh, in, there were, you know, studies uh, and we know that this uh, fermented mare milk bring a lot of vitamins, a lot of minerals. It's very, very good for the health. So if you drink a lot of it, and if you are like a Mongol um, um, meat eater, uh, then it will preserve you. It will protect your body from you know all the problems you get if you eat too too much meat. So the Mongol actually have this special diet uh, during summer, during the uh, lactation period. They would only almost drink this fermented male milk, this kumis, and they would not eat really meat and they would, would be really a very special moment for their body. It's important to understand that because it means that after uh, they, uh, they will be also a strong warrior because they have this special diet, right? Um, this time also, the, um, so spring, summer, uh, it's the time when the Mongol gather, they organize drinking festival so they can drink, you know, um, a lot of these kumis. And it's also the moment when they will um, do politics and discuss together and will gather with the horde that, you know, were far away because it's a huge empire. So they, they gather together. They also organized, you know, so games and, um, uh, you know, um, a, a pleasant moment, but also trial. They, you know, uh, it's also a moment when they decide sometime, you know, they, they take sometimes very harsh decision too. Um, so they can decide on war for next year. Uh, so uh, this moment of the drinking festival is key in, the, you know, the Mongol, uh, in the Mongol year, I would say. Um, and, um, I mentioned earlier, like uh, the importance of seasonality, and I said there are time for war and time for peace or rest. Well, the time for rest and peace is the drinking festival, so so spring and summer. Winter is time for war, so Mongol would always uh, do war in winter, except when they have no other option. But they will usually use winter for summer, and that will also puzzled. Uh, a lot of sedentary, you know, uh, people like the Russian, for instance, were not used to do uh, war in uh, to do war in winter, so they were really surprised to be attacked during, you know, the the the, the worst season of the year. They would be very surprised and not prepared to answer those attacks. While the Mongols were really able to, you know, survive through harsh winter, and but the Mongols stop everything, you know, in March, April. They have to stop because. They, they are headers, they have the drinking festival, it's a key moment, you, they can't, they, they, you know, they have to organize it, it's key to their, to themselves, really. 
Sure. Um, and I've, I've read in a few places that uh, this cumis is, is, is quite an acquired taste. Have you, have you, have you tried it? What's, what's it of like? Of course. I love it. Well, each cumis is different. Each family produced its own cumis. So you taste it and you pick up the one you prefer. But, uh, but it's, it's not only good for your health. I mean, it's honestly, it's, I think it's very good. I mean, I, I love it personally. I know that some um, travelers like Franciscan friars in the 13th century were horrified because they were like, what is this? And we have to drink it because, you know, the Han offered you a, a, you know, a cup of kumis at court. This is not something you can just, you know, refuse. You have to drink it. So, and also it's, uh, it's interesting because in Islam, you're not supposed to drink alcohol. And the question was like, kumis, you know, it's fermented. So are we allowed to, and, um, and during the Mongol period, yes, the Muslim were, um, usually using kumis, uh, drinking it. It was really uh, like, you know, uh, accepted. It's, 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 it was a very special beverage, really. Um, so, um, and, and yeah, I, uh, I think today one should really try to go to, you know, Kazakhstan or Mongolia, but during this period, there's no kumis in winter. I mean, if you find some in winter, it means like, you know, it's industrial stuff. It's not, it's not a real one. <laughs> okay. Um, now, now you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the, uh, the, the, the Khan's encampment, the, the felt wall tent area, that it was, there was, it was safe. It was safe to be there. Does that apply across the whole extent of, uh, of the horde and, and the wider Mongol Empire? Was it a safe place for people to move around? Because you kind of get a sense that this, this, this area was ruled with a certain discipline and, and that crime wasn't tolerated in quite the same way as perhaps, well, a crime's not tolerated in other, in other places, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite such a factor in life as, as, as in other places. Yes, no, it depends where and who you are. Um, we have um, uh, also a description of uh, merchants, especially Italian merchants, wanted to cross the Mongol Empire because it was possible in the 13th and 14th century. They wanted to cross, they wanted to trade, so they were worried, well, what shall I do to be, am, am I going to be safe? So, uh, of course, um, um, you would have to travel if you're a foreigner you really had to travel with other people people would not you would not go by yourself alone in the steppe it's not it was not a good idea so you would go with group of you know caravan group of merchants uh, also the, um, you would be it, it was very important if you want to communicate with the nomads you had a gift to exchange with them uh, that also they would ask you. So that created some problems uh, with the missionaries because, you know, uh, Franciscan, Dominican missionaries who visited and stay in the Mongol Empire, they were poor by, you know, by it's the way they were, like uh, missionaries. They, they didn't have gift or nothing. So it was very difficult for them to get accepted in the beginning because nobody understood why they who they were and what they wanted. So, but at the end, they, they remain and they even worked for the Mongols. So, um, they uh, the the Mongols were actually you know quite um, open to foreigners. And um, as I said, you had to respect the number of rules and you could be safe. Although, of course, um, it's, it was really important either to know. Some officials, they would, you know, help you, protect you. It was very important to have um, translators with you uh, uh, because, you know, you have to, to communicate with people. And, um, and so the merchants knew where they could hire translators, for instance. Uh, and they knew, they knew also about uh, the roads that you should 
stake to be safe and cross the empire. Um, so this kind of news circulated uh, in the 13th and 14th century and helped, you know, travelers, foreigners, you know, even ambassadors to be safe. Uh, if the Mongol really hired you as an ambassador or, you know, um, a merchant like Marco Polo, who was hired by the Great Khan, for instance, uh, they would, the Mongol would give you a kind of passport. Uh, actually, it's more like a, a metal tablet. It could be made of, you know, uh, silver or gold or iron, and you would show it to people to make them, you know, obey or uh, respect you. Uh, so the Mongol had developed also a number of things that um, make clear for the subject, oh, this person is connected to the power, so I have to be careful. So tablets or passport, you could also wear special clothes. You could have also, uh, you need to have a horse or a big, you know, uh, camel or because it shows your, your status. So anything that shows clearly your status to others, you know, also makes things clear when you're a foreigner. Um, well, but otherwise, I mean, in cities and, you know, in the steppe, the situation was not was not that bad. I mean, in terms of safety, personal safety. <laughs> So, so this this idea of the possibility of of of, of safe travel across this massive area that uh, that they get, they rule leads us into this idea of the of the Pax Mongolica and and the Mongol Exchange. A couple of um, uh, historical phrases that you um, you deploy in the book. Can you just tell us what that means and 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 when when that was manifested? So there's um, a clear period of uh, economic flourishing. It's really an economic boom in the second half of the 13th century up to the Black Death in the second half of the 14th century. So it's a long century of, you know, uh, flourishing economic exchange. And this period, we used to call it um, the Mongol peace, the Pax Mongolica, because uh, it's the concept was, you know, coming from the Pax Romana, in fact. But um, I thought with uh, other researchers that the term was not so good because they were uh, in between the Mongols themselves. There were also some fights. I mean, the term peace was strange. And I, I, uh, I said before, uh, I don't think it's a, it's a right idea to think about the conquest first as a, like a first step and then peace or organization as second step. I think we really have to, to reconsider this and that during conquests, one century of conquest, there are moments of peace and moments of organization. And during the after conquest period, we have also moments of war, of uh, very harsh economic competition between Mongols. So this appellation, I mean, I didn't like. And I uh, turned to um, uh, the term Mongol exchange, which I like much better. Mongol exchange, a little bit like Colombian exchange. Uh, so it's mean, um, it's, it's a huge phenomenon. It means that this period of history is not only about the Mongol empire, uh, geographically speaking, it will be about all the other, all the neighbors, all the other, uh, you know, states and empire that uh, were connected to the Mongols in a way or another through trade or diplomacy. It means that we are going to think about the effect, like very like far-reaching effect of the Mongol, um, you know, developments, the Mongol trade policies. Uh, so if you work on, you know, uh, Venice or Florence, uh, or Pisa in the 14th century, you 
you will see the connection with the Mongols. You will see the, the effect of the Mongol Empire on, you know, Western Europe. If we work on England also, they had connection in the 13th and early 14th century with the Mongol trade connection, diplomatic connection. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Northern uh, Europe as well. Um, so uh, Mongol exchange means that what uh, the Mongol Empire uh, did changed the world around them too. And we should not only focus on, you know, the Mongol and you know, their frontiers and frontiers of the empire, but also on the, you know, consequences of their, uh, you know, um, yeah, economic policy. And, and also on the fact that other other around other neighbor their neighbors would you know interfere they would when the italians come into the mongol empire they interfere also they have their you know their share uh they can bring something new they can create problem but they can also you know there are also a lot of positive aspects so it's an, an, a different way of seeing the phenomenon to to say mongol exchange in that sense and that's the same way when people worked on you know the um connection between europe and uh, america when you think about Colombian exchange, you immediately understand that it's not only about, you know, uh, European, you know, um, these European nations. No, it's all the consequences are already there in the term. So also, of course, uh, disease, this kind of thing we now study for the Mongol Empire. Black Death, it's really a moment of, you know, uh, and in connection with Mongol Empire uh, policy. So... Well, well, on that, um, thank you. That's that's a really fascinating way of looking at it. But but talking specifically about the Black Death there, so mid fourteenth century, um, here in the West, we're we're very aware of the impacts of the Black Death on on medieval societies here and the consequences of it and the and the societal and economic changes that perhaps uh, devolve from it. Did 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 the Black Death and the pandemic, which which came through Mongolia, um, pe- people think, did it change? Did it change society and culture in in the Horde as well? Certainly, certainly. First, we know that um, many people died in the elite, so it it will it created a lot of uh, problems uh, at the highest level uh, because you know no more no more rulers. Uh, many people died in every you know uh, every level of the society. So that's explain a part of their political issues, internal political issues. Also, <clears throat> of course, um, we know that um, each time they would um, um, organize a, a war expedition and sit in front of a city for, you know, months, um, plague or something that looked like plague very clearly would, you know, appear and destroy the warriors. So it would change the way they practice um, war and the way they attacked cities. So they, so they will, it will have really very clear consequences, especially so around this episode of the Black Death in the um, mid-14th century. But we know now that the Mongols knew about the plague well before, and that plague was in the Mongol Empire before, in fact, and uh, that they had their own ways also to deal with it. Plague or other, you know, very dangerous um, disease. They had their own way to sort of, um, like, they developed, I I don't know if I can put it that way, but like sanitary policy. Yeah, you sort of, you know, push, you, 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 when you identify the, um, you know, the, the disease and those uh, who has it, you don't enter the tent of the person. I mean, there are a lot of rules and we know they they, they knew how to deal with it. Uh, what I think was in my book, what I uh, show is that um, they did not expect 
that Western Europe, for instance, or the Middle East would be so unprepared facing the plague. And these were their main neighbors. These were their, you know, partners. Um, and uh, their partners, economic partners, suddenly, the, to the world around them, suddenly collapsed in a way. And I think that was actually even worse for the Mongols than having their own internal problems with the plague. And um, uh, we, 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 of course, the end of the Mongol Empire, it's not only because of the plague, but it's, uh, we have to take it into account. I mean, it's, it changed everything in the second half of the 14th century. Okay, so so moving on, I, I would love to talk to you for, for hours and hours, but I realise we kind of need, we need to get to, to an end point. Um, you, you mentioned the, the end of the Mongol Empire, and earlier on you also told us that the Horde sort of outlived the other um, elements of that empire. So um, how did how did the Horde come to an end did did the did they uh, did the mongols stick to their sort of nomadic lifestyle to the end or did they become sedentary and just sort of fold into into a into a different lifestyle yes um uh, yeah thank you very much for this question because i think it's really important to understand that the mongol would never become sedentary i mean they would remain up to the end nomad it's part of themselves they it's not they didn't even consider it for them it's a, it would be almost like a nonsense to sort of change this way of life because it was the way of life of their ancestors and also because it's their identity um but in the let's say, early 15th century and all uh, during the 15th century, uh, what changed um, for the Mongol was the, the world around them, actually. And I said a word of it, uh, it's connected to the episode of Black Death, but not only, I mean, the rise of the Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman will, um, uh, in the 15th century, uh, will control the, um, at the end, uh, the Black Sea, for instance. The Black Sea is a very important door to Europe for the Mongols. This door will be blocked by the, the Ottoman. So the Russian also start being really well organized, more unified. Uh, I say Russian to, you know, speak, uh, to, to, to put it simply, but um, they were Russian principalities and they, it was very fragmentary uh, in this part of, you know, the Slavic world. Then they will unify because the Mongols forced them to unify. And the response, uh, the answer of the, of the Russian at some point in the 15th century was, no, we are unified, we are stronger. And they start, you know, fighting the Mongols or at least, you know, showing them that they are not the, the subject they were in the early 13th century. So uh, in Central Asia, new, new also uh, new powers, uh, new nomadic powers. We have, you've heard of uh, Timur, Tamerlan appeared. So the world around them changed and uh, the whole change because the world around changed too. And it's a very supple regime. They were really able to transform many things. I think the best example would be like, they built cities in the lower Volga Valley. They abandoned their cities. They decided, well, it's it's not, it doesn't fit, I mean, with the, the situation now, we don't need them. It's like, it's heavy to carry in a way, and uh, we don't need them anymore. So they really made choice, political choice. They withdrew and they turned change and transform. And I uh, show in the book that in the 16th century, they really became so different. So now we talk about, you know, Kazakh, Uzbek, other names appear in the source too. So it's the end of this uh, nomadic regime. It had transformed completely, but still there's an heritage, of course. Okay. And then last thing to, to finish up, I just want to um, 
uh, sort of try and tackle the, the subhead of your of your brilliant book, uh, which is how the Mongols changed the world. So um, you've you've mentioned this a little bit earlier, but could if I asked you to kind of summarise the legacy of of the Mongols and the Horde specifically in a minute or a couple of minutes, would would you have have a go at that? <laughs> yes. Well, I say I would say that uh, the the key thing is the. Um, 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 globalization effect of the Mongol Empire and especially of the Horde in the 13, 14, up to 15th century. This uh, is a moment of globalization that we forgot completely. We historians, I mean, for long, we really thought about, you know, the 16th century at the key moment for uh, the, the earliest um, complex form of globalization. And then now we realize, well, no, there's a past and we forgot this past. And there were other experience and other um, uh, they built other another system before. It's different from what, what we have today. We cannot speak about like a direct legacy. It's more complex, of course. But we cannot understand the development of the world from the 16th century onward up to today if we don't understand the Mongol period. This is really the beginning of something completely new. They uh, put also together communities, polities that were not used to be together. They uh, also um, integrated, for instance, the Russian into the Islamic trade network. That was completely new, the way they did it. So they they transformed um, very much um, the world at that time, and the effects are going to be really, really long-lasting. And um, one of them, I think, is uh, what they did to the northern part of the world, because uh, the Horde especially was um, uh, the, uh, the major power of, of the north of the world at that time. And they created new roads, they created also new um, um, trade rules, they also integrated northern communities from Siberia, from the forest really up north into uh into the 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 heart of you know uh, of economy of Eurasian economy that which was more in the Middle East actually at that time and they also integrated the northern Europe northern Europe trade the development of trade in the Anseatic League that we know the Anseatic League really developed uh, because of the Mongols. So this is something that is very specific to the Western part of the Mongol Empire, to the Horde. So a lot of things, also monetarization, um, they forced the Russian to get uh, to get monetarized. So um, there are a huge uh, array of, you know, examples that show that the world in the 16th century exists because they were the Mongols before. So, yes, I think we have to take it into account now. That was Marie Favreau. The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World, is out now, published by Belknap Press. We'll be broadcasting more interviews with authors on the Kundal History Prize shortlist over the coming weeks, so do listen out for those. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Be sure to check in again tomorrow when we'll be exploring George III's eventful life with the historian Andrew Roberts. Thank you.